podcast where liberty is our mission today is monday march 17th 2014 and this is podcast number 367 my name is ben stone and uh, today's podcast is a uh, a recording of a call that uh, uh, i had with bill bupert nice little conversation so i hope you enjoy the uh, the conversation with bill bupert and with me is my friend bill bupert bill's website is zero gov Dot com and Bill, welcome back again to the Bad Quaker Podcast. Always an honor to come on the show with you, Ben. You're you're uh, you're a scintillating and and uh, and compelling host. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, you know we've been we've been kind of swapping off over at the Freedom Fiends, helping out Michael with his shows over there. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. That uh, that really uh, it's good for the movement in in general. Well, you know, I, I consider both you and Michael to be like the J school professors, professors for the students among the audience, including myself, who are just now, you know, trying to find out just how podcasting works and, and the rest of it, because this is the, this is the information media campaign that's going to put us over the top. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a couple things that uh, we that we wanted to cover today, and so I'll give the the audience sort of an idea of what the podcast is going to be about today. We're we're uh, we're a couple of of history buffs, history nuts, history fanatics, <laughs> and so we're going to talk about some things that are maybe boring to some people, but to other history fanatics, I mean, it's the kind of thing I love to hear history people talk about. Uh, we're going to talk about. Uh, maybe some maybe some discussion of unconventional war. Maybe some little talk about the Boer Wars that nobody ever talks about. The Boer Wars. Uh, we're going to speculate a little bit on what people like um, what 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 the what Lincoln's war might have been like if it was fought differently. And we might even get into some of the uh, War of Independence. What that might have been fought like if it was uh, if it was handled differently. And uh, we might just touch on the Crimea and the present crisis that's going on uh, in Ukraine, and we might get to talk a little bit about the uh, the Crimean War and the good old days when when brave soldiers, uh, brave cavalry would uh, would just charge right into blazing guns with swords drawn and and all the glory that surrounds that, or at least the the death and the suffering and the blood that comes with it, um, and the you know and the meaninglessness of it. Uh, in the end, when the politicians sit down and they make deals that have nothing to do with the sacrifice that the men uh, had to suffer to, to to put them in that position. Anyway, so Bill. Um, I, I'd like to start off with the Crimea, if you don't mind. Okay, sure. Let's go in that yeah. direction. Let's talk about the, the Crimean War. I mean, uh, what, what surprised me about all of this is the sheer ahistorical ignorance of the mainstream prostitutes. Yeah. And... and not paying attention to the to the rhyme and rhythm of history that you and I are, are so cognizant of, 
You talked about the charge of the Light Brigade. As a matter of fact, you, you sent me a kind email a couple weeks ago in which you said that I had stolen your fire because uh, I had mentioned it and you had been uh, chomping at the bit yep. to talk about the charge of the Light Brigade and that and that kind of uh, brave foolishness that does pile up horses and corpses in, in, a, in a very ready fashion for no good reason. And that's absolutely what it did. And it, it did turn into a bad Errol Flynn movie, too, in the, in the uh, middle of the century. <laughs> but... You know, what's interesting about it is, is we ask ourselves, why is the Crimea so important to the Russians? Well, why is Georgia and Odessa so important to the Russians, which occurred four years ago? Right. Well, the reason for that is the Black Sea Fleet is the only warm water port they have in Sevastopol. Of course, Turkey lies to the south of the Crimea. And in Turkey, there's, a, there's this little slender sliver of land that joins, but it has a place called, and you'll know this, starts with a D, called the Dardanelles. Right. Winston Churchill, one of the most vicious, vituperous, and preposterous statists of the 20th century, was a big champion of, of trying to murder lots of Australian light infantry and lots of British infantry during World War I to capture that. And that's exactly what happened. I think it was Gallipoli, was it not? Correct, yeah. Yeah, at Gallipoli. So what we find here is, is, like you mentioned, this place is just rife with history. But the reason why it's so important for us to know the history, of course, is because if you don't know where you've been, you can't possibly know where you are. Are the Russians going to bend on getting the Crimean port under the Russian flag? They, they, they will not bend. They, can't. they cannot bend. They cannot. And they have an interesting relationship with the Ukraine, and the Ukrainians don't like it. But apparently – I think that it was in 2000 and – no, 1997, there was a treaty with the Ukraine about Sevastopol in which there's 15 to 20,000 Russian naval and, uh, and, and miscellaneous troops stationed there. And that treaty was supposed to go through 2017. It was renegotiated in 2010 because of Putin threatening to shut off the fuel to the Ukraine, and now it is extended to 2042. So the Russians have a treaty in place that the Ukrainians will honor no matter what because they don't have a choice of allowing the Russians to remain at Sevastopol. But what the Russians want is they want a defense in depth, and I think that's why they want the entirety of the Crimea, and it is their only warm water port. Yeah, I've made the argument that the Crimea to Russia is very much like California is to the United States. It, it, it acquired it about the same time frame under similar circumstances. And yeah, there's some political divisions, but essentially, um, the U.S. is not going to give up California. You know, we're not just going to turn that over to Mexico and say, oops, sorry about invading you and stealing that land. They're not going to do that. And the Russians cannot and will not give up uh, uh, the Crimean. You know, Ben, I think that's such a keen observation because another thing that people lose sight of is the importance of symbolism. When you look at the War of the Blackbirds, I think it was in the 12th or the 13th century, in what where Kosovo is today, it's a sacred site for the Serbians, much like Mecca is for the Muslims and much like Jerusalem would be for the Christians. Right. And maybe other religions could name places and, and – and, um, and important times that meant so much to them symbolically. And I think that that symbolism plays a large part in the Russian psyche. And I think that Putin also knows he has Obama over a barrel because Obama really is a midget in so many ways. He's morally and intellectually a midget, and he is not a statesman. He doesn't have the gravitas. 
He doesn't have the knowledge. He doesn't have the history. And he doesn't surround himself with smart people who can read history both backwards and forwards. Yeah. You know, and there's something else about American presidents in general. Uh, the United States selects its presidents, assuming that that's even true, but the United States selects its presidents based on uh, which one is slimy enough to get enough corporate backing to get the right position in the party um, and, and then, you know, uh, make it through the election process. And Putin did not get to where he's at through that process. Putin got to his process to where he's at um, through stacks of bodies and through uh, just sheer political genius that got him where he is. He's a ruthless individual. Um, and Obama and Bush before him and Clinton before him and on and on and on, they have never gone through that kind of process. We've never had anybody as as ruthless as Putin in the American awful office, OFFAL, since at FDR probably. Yeah. Because I do consider FDR and Wilson and Lincoln, even though they're at the top of the usual suspects, best presidents list, I suspect Ben, you and I would put them at the bottom. And that, and that really is a, a, a band of sordid brothers Yeah. when you're talking about that. But they, they are they are stacked at the bottom because they're just they're, – they're awful, venal creatures who are just neck deep in blood. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and that takes us back to the Crimea. And again, with with FDR, uh, maybe people don't realize that FDR actually went to the Crimea, met with Joseph Stalin and uh, 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 Churchill, and uh, pretty much divided up the way that they were going to have everything after uh, after World World War II was over. That that took place in the Crimea. Was that Potsdam? Uh, no, the other one um, was it Yalta. That's right, Yalta, yeah. and and not only that, that's where the secret handshake deals were made for such uh, awful things as Operation Keelhaul, which I won't I won't trouble you with, and your <laughs> audience can look that up on the net. But it's it's just so egregious morally that it, it it just makes you turn pale just reading about it. You know, and I would be doing a disservice if I didn't throw in one other thing about since Churchill is being mentioned and and all these names are being thrown around. Churchill's the one, and, I, and my listeners have heard that, heard me talking about this before churchill's the one that in reference to dresden admitted that dresden was an act of terrorism on the part of uh, uh of the allied uh, forces now that surprises me i had he- i had heard notions of that but i never saw that confirmed because and see now you're, you're you're riffing me on another subject that is near and dear to my heart and that's strategic bombing i had this occasion to go to the i live near the uh, Pima Air and Space Museum, which is near Davis-Monthan Airfield in Tucson, Arizona. So I had the occasion to bring my family up there because my family is filled with aviation buffs to include myself. So we went to the uh, the airplane park. There's probably one of the largest airplane parks where you can actually walk around the aircraft in these United States. Well, they opened up a new strategic bombing building, I 558th fighter wing, I mean bomber wing, what, whatever the heck it was. I went in there out of curiosity after grabbing an air sickness bag for myself in case I was overwhelmed by uh, mm-hmm. by my disgust at what it represented. One of the docents in there, you know, one of those tour guides, he, he was standing there, and he looked like he was 105. And he, he sidled up to me when I was looking at, at one of their um, their posters, and he said, can I help you, son? Do you have any questions? And I looked him square in the eye, and I said, were you air crew? And he said, yes, I was. And I said, I, I, I'm so sorry that you and every member of the strategic, strategic bombing fleet 
didn't suffer the same kind of trials that they did for the Germans at Nuremberg because of what you did. Because what you did was monstrous and terroristic. Now, he was taken aback because what he's used to hmm. is he comes up and asks a question, and he's waiting for me to shake his hand and say, thank you for your service, which right. I, I right. don't have the courage to do. But strategic bombing, there's a number of great books out there on that very subject. When we take a break, I'm going to grab two of them so I can recommend them to your audience. But I would uh, – two off the top of my head is Pape's two works called Dying to Win and Cutting the Fuse about homicide terrorists and suicide bombings and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And in a smaller context, it's relational to the strategic bombing because it is a form of terrorism. And terrorism by – Well, we seem to have lost Bill for a moment here. Ben, I'm back. Okay, there we go. <laughs> okay, so, so go ahead. So the, Caleb Carr's definition of terrorism is politically motivated violence against noncombatants and innocents, mm-hmm. which, of course, in, in, the, in the metaphysical and, and macro worldview you and I share, that means government of every stripe. Right. Whether this, this apocryphal and chimera-like limited government notion, which I think is foolishness like believing in Sasquatch and unicorns, or, you know, the – the maximum government that we see in communism, socialism, fascism, and, and, and all those isms. Strategic bombing to me is, is so devoid of, of moral, ethical, and virtuous integrity. I don't know how the apologists can come up with good reasons to do it because it is quite literally making war, war in a very Lincolnian fashion on men, women, and children. Right. Non-combatants. And, and, and I, I just find it appalling. Yeah. Rant off. <laughs> yeah, we are in on exactly the same page on that. If I can remember to do it, I'll I'll dig through my notes and find where the Winston Churchill quote is and what its sources are and so forth and send that to you. That'd be fantastic. My my memory is not so great, but I'll I'll give it a shot anyway. <laughs> That's what the internet's for, Ben. Yeah. Um so yeah, so uh, Putin absolutely is not going to let go of the. Uh, he, he's going to hold on to it with everything that he's got for the same reason that he's going to hold on to his position in office. The same reason Barack Obama wants to be in office. The same. It's all in the same statism. Uh, they they can't let go of things like that if they're going to continue in their in their power. Well, I just find it outrageous when I listen to the awful office and all our all our Western European allies. Going on and on and, and um, hemming and hawing about the fact that he has supposedly invaded Crimea and invaded the Ukraine. And they're saying that we have to levy sanctions and stuff like this. Well, what what did the United States and NATO do in, in a NATO out-of-area operation? What did they do in Iraq? What did they do in Afghanistan? What did they do in Yemen? What did they try to do in Syria? What are they doing in a dozen countries in the Horn of Africa? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's outrageous hubris to call Putin – on protecting what is essentially his regional interests as he interprets them when America and the Western allies don't even care about regional interests because they want a global claw hold. Right. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And and the media, well, oh, they're they're the guilty. Yes, exactly. They are they are guilty of allowing that because they don't they don't I'm I'm sure of all the people in the media some of them have to be bright enough to know better than this. Look, I'm, I'm watching with a, a tangential issue in this is that I'm watching with, with keen interest the secessionist mechanics of how this is going to happen. I'm going to watch closely, much like Osatia four years ago, and much like what we'll probably see with the Crimea, they are actually going to either partition 
or calve themselves off of the Ukraine proper mm. and become a genuinely uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Russia. And I want to see the way that process works because, as you know from, from my previous articles and discussions that we've had, secession is near and dear to my heart. And I think that it's it's the only answer as long as we're seeking political solutions, which I think are the worst solutions of all. But if we have to, we can find the best of the worst. And the best of the worst to me, as far as political action is concerned, is secession from a from a greater state and devolving and decentralizing that power. One remote but possible scenario in the in the Ukraine proper, not so much I think Crimea, because I think the the feelings are different there than they are in most of the rest of Ukraine. But one very remote possibility in Ukraine um, is civil war in the sense of. Uh, uh, you know, possibly Russia attempting to move in militarily and those in the Ukraine uh, resisting that to turn it into a true um, unconventional war of some kind. What, what, what are your speculations in that realm? Well, I, I think the possibility is certainly there. And, and here's what I do know. If the, if the Russians go in to defeat the Ukrainian military, they will do that in a week. If the Russians go in and they face a resistance similar to what they've experienced in Afghanistan and some of the other stands once they were released between 1989 and 91 from the USSR when it went to its graveyard. I think uh, they're going to be in for a years-long battle, as you and I are both aware when it comes to these. I mean, there's a reason they call unconventional conflicts long wars, because they uh, they echo in eternity. I, I think... Not understanding the significance of that is part of the folly of, of the U.S. going into Afghanistan and, and you know, even to a large extent what went, what went on in Vietnam and in other places. But uh, really ex- explain to my listeners a little bit, because I haven't really gone into this a lot, the, the difference in the strengths and weaknesses of a, of a conventional military going into a country like uh, Ukraine or Afghanistan or anywhere else. As you opposed know, to the, the natives yeah. there defending their own land. Certainly. I, there, there are several. And you and I could talk about for hours about this. As a matter of fact, are you going to be at Porkfest this year? Uh, we haven't determined whether we have the funding for it or not yet, so I'm not sure. Well, I hope you go. I'll be there. And I am conducting a half-day seminar on irregular warfare and conventional warfare history and practice oh, good. on a Saturday. So I'll discuss some of these things more at length then I'll cover my answer to your question now. The first thing is I'm going to just cover three of the items that come to mind immediately. And the first thing is they have the advantage of home turf. When it comes to home terrain, especially mountainous terrain, they always have the advantage. As a matter of fact, I know this sounds hubristic, but there's Bupert's Law of Military Topography, which is that if a people are a rifle culture, if a people are a rifle culture, they know how to use their rifles well, and they live in mountainous terrain. They cannot be militarily defeated. Hmm. And the second would be asymmetrical warfare means that, much as Sun Tzu and Sun Pin taught us 2,500 years ago, if the enemy has strengths, you have to leverage against weaknesses that expose behind those strengths. For instance, if you look at Napoleon, Napoleon didn't lose at Waterloo. Napoleon lost to partisans and irregulars who were who were harrying and neutralizing his lines of communication, to which he had to put almost three-quarters of his troop levels 
to protect his lines of communication and logistical support. The same thing happened with U.S. Grant when he was investing Vicksburg, which is one reason why it took him so long to defeat Vicksburg, was because he had to take so much of his order of battle and dedicate it to protect, pro protecting his lines of communication and a support infrastructure. And the third item is that they live there. They are invested in doing it, and they discover that there's a million-dollar MRAP, and I'm going to spend $500 to destroy that million-dollar MRAP. Over time, there's an entropic process there that will take even the most abundantly wealthy country down if it continues to meddle. And that's one of the real strengths of that kind of warfare, too, is that it's so inexpensive to, to fight that kind of warfare uh, if you're on the defensive side. and it, It's so cheap, and it's so expensive if you're on the uh, attacking side. Oh, absolutely, especially when it comes to, to imperial overreach and that kind of thing. You know, that's it, it always slays me when I watch the media or I talk to these supposed experts on the Middle East, and they're complaining about Karzai's behavior. Well, Karzai's ungrateful. Well, he's this. Well, he's that. It all makes perfect sense if you look at Karzai as a political actor as much as you and I loathe them. But he's a pretty cunning and savvy guy because his audience is regional. His re audience isn't global. Right, Because what, he, what he's essentially trying to do is make sure that Iran, Pakistan, the Stan brothers, there's seven countries that are contiguous to Afghanistan, that all those countries are behaving in a fashion in which they stay out of his. Yeah, That's what he's concerned of. But then again, I say stay out of his. Karzai has Kabul. Outside of Kabul, Afghanistan is an imaginary country, and I, and I admire that. It, yeah, it actually always has been. You know, it's never Agreed. been. Uh, Agreed. What, what we in the West think of as a nation state, it, it never has been and never will be, probably. And that kind of devolved leadership and ethnic and clan relationships strengthens asymmetrical and unconventional warfare advantages on the part of the rebels inside that country protecting their own turf. You probably know this, um, so this might just be a, a, a something for my viewer, for my listeners. Um, in the 1960s, Afghanistan was a hippie destination and sort of a, a place where people could – you could fly into Kabul and then hike across the country and hike all the way up into the Himalayas and go get really, really cheap dope. And, and Indeed. The, the people it, were, it's also been a, it's, it's been a mountaineer's mecca yeah. because of the Hindu Kush. Yeah. They were unbelievably friendly and they were required by their religion to be friendly to any traveler. Well, we, I, I had the, the uh, misfortune, I wrote a review about it, about that, that movie Lone Survivor, which I thought was appalling, but cinematically, as a military chase movie, probably one of the best ever made, but appalling nonetheless in showing just what we do and, and, and the kind of, you know, I'm using the we. I've been trying to cure myself <laughs> of this, Ben. What the U.S. What the US does, you know, I have to, it, the, our linguistic frameworks are so complex that, if we convince ourselves and we keep saying we, we become a part of that. It's just like you, you, should's a great word as long as I is in front of it. But once you start pluralizing it, that's when should becomes pretty dangerous. Did you see Lone Survivor? No, I, I didn't. I, I did read your review, though. Okay. Well, one thing that was mentioned in the movie was this uh, this concept that you're talking about, about hospitality, even to your enemy if they're in your home. Wow. And, of course, they recognize that. Well, but Southerners do, too. Yeah. Yeah.
Very true. Northerners don't because Northerners are uncivilized. <laughs> um, coming from an Appalachian family, I I, uh, I have to uh, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, if you think about it, the Appalachians up until you know Popcorn Sutton. Oh yeah. The Appalachians up until the 1930s had places that rivaled uh, some of the under, and I I love these terms, Ben. I, I read this in a book. Recently, they call them state repellent or under-governed regions, <laughs> and 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 I would I would suppose that the Appalachians through the 1930s and and, and maybe you can convince me that it, it it went after that was largely ungovernable by the feds. Yeah, yep, very much, and yep. some might argue that that's the case in some areas today. I, they openly have fields of marijuana, and you just shouldn't go in there. <laughs> and bully for them. Yeah. Uh, and just as a disclaimer, I'm not a, you know, I don't use any kind of illegal drugs or anything like that, but uh, I certainly don't think any money should be wasted chasing people who decide to do that. Nor do I. I think that illegal vegetation is a silly concept. <laughs> now, um, just as to, since we're in this area of speculation, we, we teased about maybe how, Lincoln's war might have been fought differently, and and uh, we're talking about sure. Afghanistan and what yeah. could be done in Ukraine. What if uh, what if the United States, uh, you know, a lot of people expect some type of a major financial collapse in the in the future of the United States government. It's just spending to a point of where it's ridiculous, and. Um, as something like this could take place, and I know a lot of the survivalists have uh, very, some of them very vivid ideas of how they believe this is going to all happen, and I think some of them are relatively valid, and some of them are just pure fantasy. Um, but how do you think uh, a major empire like the United States will uh, eventually begin to crumble, and what the interior of it will look like during that time? It's um, you, you you've caught me a little off guard because it's, it's such a a huge proposition you put before me, and and I can only paint it with the broadest brush, which is that once, as you're well aware, I think that the police and police forces are the existential threat to human liberty and freedom in the history of mankind. Correct. Absent police forces, constabulary, and and these vicious killer cockroaches that we have today. They would not be able to enforce these regulations, these laws that we suffer and live under in, in a state of oppression. I, uh, it's, it's almost as if the USSA is an occupied nation in the way the police conduct themselves. These police, by the way, I, I, I was at a conference uh, two weeks ago, and I always bandy the, the number 19,000 police departments. But I was corrected by a friend of mine, Mark Stevens, who says he thinks it's 86,000 departments from the local to the federal level, and all of them who have armed, badged, costumed employees wow. who do that kind of thing, 86,000. I guess there's a million badged thugs who are paid in the statist payroll in America. Once they can't be paid, and once the economy collapses and they can't be paid because it is paycheck plus pension equals obedience – that, that seems to be the meme that guides police officers because it certainly isn't virtue, morality, or a sense of Peel's 18, 1829 police laws and virtues. I mean, they don't follow any of that today. Right. I think with the collapse of the economy and probably a raging wholesale retaliation 
across the nation against cops, all bets are off as far as what's going to happen. But what I do think is going to happen that we can bet on is that decentralization and devolution will be a result of D.C.'s inability to arm its tentacles anymore. Yeah. yeah. So that's going to – and there's going to be all kinds of, of, of black swans and second and third order effects you and I can't even predict. But there is one thing I want to put to bed. There are so many speculators out there who say, well, once the United States falls, it will be carved up by foreign nations. California will be, belong to China. The Northeast will belong to Europe. The Southeast will belong to uh, you, you name who it will be, some foreign power. The uh, uh, the Oxlon Empire will emerge in New Mexico, parts of Texas and Arizona. I think that's all poppycock because when you look at the history in the last 300 years, all I ask is show me where that's happened. Right. Show me where a large empire like ours has devolved and, and fallen into constituent pieces where all these foreign nations come in and, and glom onto them and they take over the custodial problems that caused it to devolve in the first place. It makes no sense to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I have, since the first time I heard that, I, the, the, the ridiculousness of it just struck me so bizarre that I, I couldn't understand how anybody uh, could even toy with the idea, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, we've tr we've tried on the U.S. has tried on three separate occasions to incorporate all the whole of Canada into the United States. In 1848, the attempt was made uh, during that conflict to bring parts or all of Mexico into the U.S. fold. Mm -hmm. That failed, and the, uh, there are a variety of reasons it failed. As a result of not getting those two large geographical slices. Is the U.S. less great or more great in power as a result? Because the you know what I hear from people all the time, especially the conservatives who are the the worst violators, Ben, the neocons and some of the paleocons. When you say, "Well, DC is a problem," once we get DC out of the mix and devolve into different nation states, much like the thirteen nation states in 1783 that sued for peace with the United Kingdom and Paris, where they came as separate self-governing entities, once that happens here, we're going to be better off. They'll say, no, 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 that's impossible. We've got to let the U.S. remain as it's always been. This is a this is a union of perpetuity, to paraphrase <laughs> the Articles of Confederation. Well, if that's the case, and I'm going to suspend my disbelief in thinking that that's a virtuous path, then why aren't they in, in, why aren't they in love or advocates for world government? Right. Because if, if not wanting to tear down into its constituent pieces – the centralized monster that we live under in the USSA, if that's a bad idea, why is it a good idea to have separate nations all over the planet? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's a logical fallacy that they practice. That I, I guess it's a it's a lack of self examination and and following the the stoic dialogue of their own path. Here's probably a good spot to take a break and save the file, especially since we've already dropped Skype a couple times. Certainly. And, uh, and so, folks, stick with us. We'll be right back. And thanks for sticking with us. This has been Stone with Bad Quaker Podcast, back with Bill Bupert. And Bill promised to share the titles of a couple of books with us. Bill, what do you got there? Well, you know, I had mentioned Pape's book, Dying to Win and Cutting the Fuse. And I was interested in how Pape had arrived at his conclusions is what was his intellectual evolution that led him to pretty much, I think, tear apart the, the, uh, 
the intuitive sense that suicide bombing is by lunatics and religious fanatics. What Pape discovered was that 95% plus of all suicide bombings are the case of residents of that country bombing occupiers of their country. So I said, well, where did Pape come from with this? Well, he wrote a book earlier, about 10 years earlier, called Bombing to Win, Air Power and Coercion in War by Robert Pape. So you can see where he took that strategic bombing meme and he said, well, how does this work at a more micro or, or atomized level? And I think that's how he arrived at, at his venture in, in cutting to win and, and uh, dying to win and cutting the fuse. And there's one more book I recommend to your audience, which is called Bombing, a 20th Century History of Bombing Civilians. It's edited by uh, Yuki Tanaka and Marilyn B. Young. It's It's got a variety of articles in it. And it's pretty heart-wrenching to read it, but it really shows you that this this serial killer meme that we have running through Western society, and I would I would suggest running through governments because governments are death cults first and foremost. Right. Is that it's once Stalin kills, and you've heard this, and you could probably tell me the exact quote. Stalin can kill millions of people, and that makes him a great man. If uh, if Jeffrey Dahmer kills and cannibalizes a dozen people, well, he's a bad man. Well, there's no difference between the two of them. It was just a matter of scope, ambition, and ability. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, I should also mention uh, your website is zerogov.com, uh, and people need to get yes. get over there to ZeroGov and check out Bill's uh, book list. Because if you, a lot of people have asked me um, to put together a book list, and I've intended to do that several times, and I failed every single time. Well, here's what you can do: instead of waiting for me to do it, get over to zerogov.com and look at. There's two articles over there where Bill has put together really good uh, little breakdowns, just a couple lines for each book that breaks it down and says, you know, this is why you should or shouldn't look at this book. And um, get over there and look at those articles. And you're going to be amazed at Bill's uh, uh, book list. Well, thanks, Ben. I was riffing off Billy Beck's list. Do you know Billy Beck? I wasn't familiar with him until I saw him, uh, the links from your site. Okay. Apparently, he, he posts on some other sites on the web, and he's probably one of our confreres as far as being abolitionists. And he had originally put that list together between 04 and 09. And a friend of mine and several readers asked me, well, tell me what you think about that list. So that's what I did. And I only took the books off his list that he and I shared, but it turns out that over half of our respective libraries <laughs> shared the same volumes. And that's probably the same case at your house, Ben. Yeah, um, some of my listeners might have heard me complaining about this back in um, uh, August and September and well into October. It was supposed to be a, a small job, but I should have – I have unrealistic views sometimes – um, we, my wife and I, uh, essentially packed everything in our house, uh, like if we were moving, except we didn't move. We, uh, ha had our son come in as a renter and take over the house. So my entire library had to be boxed and, uh, and put away. Now, unfortunately, half of my library was already in boxes from our last move 18 years earlier. Um, but uh, spending the time to try to take these books, and, and I didn't have time to really organize them the way I'd like to. I, we were just shoving them in boxes. And you don't really get the scope of how many books you have until you start doing that. And then you realize, why do I have so many books? I'm never going to go back through all these. 
you know, the knowledge is in my head. I just may not even know where it came from necessarily. Well, I have plenty of reasons to keep my books, and, you, and you'll see in the uh, in, in the blog postings that you so kindly pointed your audience toward. I talk about the concept of the anti-library, and the anti-library is Umberto Eco, who wrote Foucault's Pendulum and some other books that are that are outstanding novels. He has thirty-five thousand tomes in his library at home, which is amazing. I mean, wow! Think of that, thirty-five thousand. And he was asked, "Have you read all those books?" And that's what a doofus asks. <laughs> Have you read all those books? You know, of course I haven't read all those books. I mean, so that's my anti-library. Probably half of my books are my anti-library, but I use them. I have DuPois Encyclopedia of Military History, which covers about 4,000 years of military history in, yeah. a, in a digest version. Have I read it cover to cover? Of course I haven't read it cover to cover. Have I read Human Action cover to cover? I guess this is a disclosure that's dangerous for me to make. No, I haven't, but I've read parts of it, parts that I find applicable. Same with Rothbard's Man, Economy, and State. Same with, uh, you know what, I've got two book projects this year. Uh, one is a novel, and the second one is I'm taking all six volumes of Lysander Spooner's complete published works, and I'm doing an analysis, elucidation, and summary of them. Wow. So if I sell 100 of those, I'll be lucky, so it's going to be more so a labor of love <laughs> than anything else because no one else has done it. And uh, and I'll be better for it once I complete that research project. But yeah, libraries. I'm, I'm in the same boat you are, Ben. We uh, we just sold our house uh, last year. I had to pack everything up. A lot of my books are in storage. Fortunately, I have a secret weapon. It's called Delicious Monster. I would uh, I would urge you and your readership to uh, I I use Macs at home, and I I think it's just uh, Mac centric, but it's a cataloging device that you can use for all your books, and that's really helping because what I'm trying to do is find some of the books that I'm going to keep. And some that I'm not going to keep if I can replace them on my Kindle. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with, with my notions and possible ambitions of, of expatting. Let's, uh, before we run out of uh, time, let's talk a little bit. Would you prefer speculating about Lincoln's War or would you prefer talking about the, uh, the Boer War? Boer uh, both. Wars. Both, of course, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me let me spout ben, my normal. Who else, who else could I t- who else could I talk to about the Boer War but you? <laughs> let me spout my normal uh, spiel about the Boer Please Wars. Do. Anybody anybody who knows very much about World War II or thinks they do should readily admit that World War II was an extension of World War One. But anybody who thinks they know a lot about World War One needs to take a look at the Boer Wars if they really want to know what led to the horrible and idiotic thing that we call World War One? The Boer Wars were a setup for a situation where a, a an up-and-coming empire, the, the German Empire, was clashing with a dying empire, the English Empire, and they were doing so in a somewhat proxy manner through the Boers and through the people of South Africa. And uh, right in the middle of all that, somebody found gold and diamonds, and it threw the whole balance off in every way. But the attitudes that that changed from the mid-1800s between England and Germany to the attitudes that you see around 1900 are a result directly of the conflicts that, uh, that we call the Boer Wars. Uh, the second Boer War... Um, and I'm just kind of getting my my listeners up to date here. The second yeah. Boer War was largely uh, an unconventional war, and it introduced some practices by the British on people of Dutch descent that 
that later, you know, uh, people were appalled when Hitler did essentially the same thing. And, and America with the Japanese. Yeah, and of course the, what the United States government did with the American Indians, it's essentially the same thing. Absolutely. Uh, but, uh, but that, it was, it was almost, uh, it was done by the English with such blinding efficiency in the Second Boer War that rather than fight out an unconventional war, the Boers, uh, stopped. They, they didn't, their, their, their hand was called by it. And it's really chilling to read how the English, uh, starved, you know, the elderly, uh, women, children, uh, just, you know, uh, that's how they won the Second Boer War. Uh, 22,000 children under the age of 16 were starved by the British. Wow. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, it was, it was really, it was about English pride and it was about extending the empire and all that kind of thing, but diamonds were really important and gold was really important. That- I, I agree with everything you said, and uh, that's probably one of the gr- the best summations I've heard of a rather exotic topic, Ben. And, and I appreciate the fact that that you paid attention to that. And it's interesting when you say that the uh, the Germans were watching, and the French were watching this too, mm-hmm. because when we look at the German and British incestuousness in in um in the elder house relationships where. Kaiser II was a grandson of Queen Victoria, Mm -hmm. and for nearly 500 years, they had been intermarried and intermingled between the German and the the British peoples. Not that Germany was even formed as a nation state until 1871. Now, when that occurs, what we see is an astonishing reversal from 1890 to 1910, and Robert K. Massey talks about this from a naval perspective, in Dreadnought and Castles of Steel, which which I think is probably the most crystalline lens to look through to see how that odd configuration reversed itself, where all of a sudden the French, after 400 years of historical enmity with the British, were best buddies with yeah. the British, yeah. and all of a sudden the Germans became the, uh, the ones to be hated. I mean, it was the Germans, I think, who sent the Kruger telegram congratulating the Boers, did they not? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, the Germans had their eye on empire and they had a late start on it unlike the french and the english and later on and this has nothing to do with the boer wars but it but it bears mention the only undefeated german general standing on planet earth in 1918 was leto vorbeck who had been chased by up to his 10,000 minus schutztruppe mostly black native uh native levies and troops had been chased for 4 years by the Allied forces throughout German East Africa, and he remained undefeated. They levied as many as 650,000 troops against him and 125 general officers who never, ever caught him. Wow. Yeah. And there were, there were, there was a fair, there was a fair amount of, uh, of Boer experience in his shoots trooper ranks, and he drew from the Boer Wars for a lot of what he did, not only to establish his self-sufficiency, since Germany could provide him with no provisioning or lines of communication whatsoever, but in his fighting style. One of the things that disturbs me about possible scenarios for uh, for a, U- a United States government collapse and internal strife, you know, here in this area, uh, is that 
one of the ways that governments deal with unconventional war essentially is the way they did with the Boers, literally going after the aspects of the population that couldn't defend themselves and holding them hostage uh, as uh, as a way to force the fighters to give up. And that indeed, you know, and that, and that speaks to strategic bombing. You know, what's strategic bombing all about? It's about taking the war to women and children. And and for those of us who do have a warrior ethos, and I think that that most of us as men genetically have that, and I have one because of having served as a legionary for most of my adult life. It's um, it's indescribably awful to be told, or 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 to be ordered to take the war to unarmed women and children. I mean, it takes it. It that's a Lincolnian dimension, of course. You know, Lincoln advocated that kind of thing. Yeah, that was essentially that was the way that they came to determine that that was the way to defeat the South was essentially to cut a swath through the middle, take out their ability to grow crops and uh, and take the war to the civilian population. Absolutely. And, and they, you know, of course, are governments capable of formulating a rationale for doing that? Well, they've been doing it since time immemorial. It's it's kind of like a part of the fallback uh, for any any government. It's not just well. What what did the Romans do to Carthage? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, so uh, Washington did this in upstate New York. There were uh, you know there were a lot of people in upstate New York that were neutral to to Washington's war, and uh, there were Canadians that were of course sympathetic to the English, but a lot of the Canadians were entirely neutral. They didn't care one way or the other. A lot of them had come from a French background, and, and they really didn't care one way or the other. And of ben, course, are you speaking to the French and Indian Wars or, or Rev War One? Um, the uh, the Revolutionary War. Uh, okay, okay. That um, where okay. where Washington actually sent troops into uh, into Indian nations that were relatively neutral. And had Indian villages burned, had crops burned, had Indian, uh, you know, man, women, children killed. And Washington did this. Uh, and, you know, it's amazing to – I've read some of his letters ordering this to be done. And then when the guys weren't efficient enough at doing it, his little reprimands to them, uh, it, it's it's really chilling. And it's an aspect of Washington that nobody that I've ever seen really I, goes into. I don't think that the revisionist historians who have ripped asunder successfully, I think, Lincoln's sycophantic legacy that, mm -hmm. that he had up until the 1990s, the same hasn't been done for George Washington. I, I, I happen to think he was a monster. We, we had the HBO production of John Adams, and of course that was lauded in, oh, what a, what a great guy. Well, what did John Adams do in 1798? He said, if you criticize the, uh, the federal government, we will find you, cage you, or maul you. Yeah. Or, in the case of the Aurora newspaper in Philadelphia, we'll shut you down. Yeah. The true nature of these monsters come out as soon as they have power. It does. It does, indeed. Let's, uh, since we're kicking Washington, and it's always fun to kick Washington, <laughs> <laughs> you as a military man with knowledge of, uh, of military tactics and, and knowledge of how a military is supposed to work, um, how, do you, uh, how do you grade Washington? Oh, I give I give Washington a D minus. You know, the the only reason why why that hapless man is one of the great captains of history is the same reason why everybody adores the Constitution. They haven't done their homework. Yeah, uh, as a matter of fact, in your list of books to read, you talk about the anti-federalist papers. Uh, it, it amazes me how many um, 
hmm, how do I say it politely? Liberty enthusiasts have no idea about the uh, uh, anti-federalist papers. Well, you're right. And not only was it the anti-federalist papers, it was the Aurora that I mentioned earlier. It was all the newspaper editorials that weren't signed by anti-federalists who were absolutely horrified at the prospect of the Constitution. And it was just that, I guess you could call it almost an anti-authoritarian meme that made the colony so independent prior to 1775 in the first place in self-administration in a kind of devolved and decentralized way that benefited the crown in a big way because the administrative burden for the most part was handled by the colonials and they simply gave their vig or tax to the king as he wished. I mean, it was a good deal for the king and I think the king made a critical strategic error when he tried to confiscate Weapons, guns, powder, and, and that kind of thing. April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was uh, <clears throat> what we might be looking forward to at some point in time when uh, it becomes blatantly obvious to the residents of America that all of those police that are keeping them safe on the corner are actually just there as tax collectors, and that's all they really are. Well, I'm watching Connecticut very closely, and I'm fascinated by what's going on there. And and if anything gives the lie to Registration not equaling confiscation. Well, Connecticut is your that that is Exhibit A, and why that's the case. Because what what Connecticut's doing, and I know we're riffing all over the place, Ben. So excuse me. <laughs> what, what 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 Connecticut's done is they've essentially told their citizenry. They said, "You will register your weapons. If you don't register them, we will confiscate them." But why register them in the first place? The reason you register them is so that de facto and de jure confiscation is available sometime in the future. Correct. Yeah. So it's. Silliness, and there, and and to a large extent, from what I'm seeing, people are not cooperating. A large quantity are cooperating, but a lot aren't. It's it's really interesting. It is. It, what what else is interesting too is that they're saying, well, we're going to co- if you don't register your weapons, we're going to come to your house. But if they haven't if they haven't registered, how do you know where they are? <laughs> well, one way they do know is the same reason I've never darkened the, the a gun store since 1992, is 4473s. Gun yeah. stores are nothing, like like banks are non-funded IRS field offices, mm-hmm. gun stores in America are nothing more than non-funded ATF field offices. Yeah. That's the purpose they serve. In, in, my, in the great state of Arizona, we can purchase weapons out of the classifieds, both newspaper and virtual, and have a face-to-face hand over cash, and the deal is done, no registration required. I don't know if that's the case in Connecticut. This is the reason why the uh, um, the gun and knife shows, uh, that this is the reason why they're going after them to try to shut them down, because in your typical gun and knife show, uh, people, just regular people on the street, uh, without any kind of legal classifications, buy and sell guns, and there's no record of them. And that eats to the status so bad because not only do they not get any taxes, they don't get their vig. What you said, I love, I love the 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 fact that you put it that way. But uh, not only do they not get to to moisten their beak, at, uh, you know, in the labor of others like they like to do, but also. Well, I like that turn of phrase, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you know, uh, that's, that's a, a mafia phrase of, of, uh, that I, I get to moisten my beak 
But it is. that's uh, not just, they're not talking about water. They're talking about the spoils of, ki- of a kill. Yes, indeed. Uh, because as you know, carrion birds, uh, carrion birds, uh, follow in the olden days would follow the, the, uh, the armies waiting for the opportunity to feed. And that's very much what these statists are. I, I agree. I think, uh, I think associating them with carrion birds just, it, it puts a pleasant picture in my mind. <laughs> You know, Franklin Franklin complained about the eagle being the symbol of America because it was a carrion eater. And I think, well, isn't that appropriate? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's odd that, that he pointed that out because he, you know, uh, what was it? Roth, Rothbard called him, um, oh, what was it? He had the, this phrase for, for Franklin because Franklin w- was a man of two faces. He It's according to who the crowd was, that's who he was pleasing. And yes. it was very rare that you would see the true Franklin come out and he would say something like that that would reveal his real feelings. But uh, he was he was there, you know, uh, uh, back slapping and glad handing as the Constitution was being ratified. But, uh, you know, he was also anywhere that he needed to be to because, uh, you know, he was doing things like selling script to the government because he was the printer so he could of make course. money off of it. Yep. but I'm I'm going off in every direction uh, now. No, so. that's that's fine though, and, and I've got a I've got a you know every time I come on I've got to recommend books for your audience. You just mentioned what Rothbard said about Franklin, and Rothbard of course mentioned that in his brilliant and magisterial four volume series called Conceived in Liberty, for which all sixteen hundred pages are available for four dollars and ninety nine cents for Kindle. Can you believe that? Wow, I mean that's a revolution. And, and that and is a revolu- great that, that, set. Oh, it's a great – that set is Revolution in a Box. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is really, really good. I uh, I have gone through it a couple times, I'm happy to say. Uh, Rothbard's writings to me are much easier than, say, Mises or even uh, Hayek. I agree 100%. I, I, I have to admit I cannot read Mises. I have tried and tried and tried, and I just literally fall asleep. And, and I don't understand. Church. Yeah, yeah. I don't understand it's half like- of what I'm reading. And you want to read it because you know how important it is. But for me, it's like T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. <laughs> I, it, it's a turgid slog, and there's some great writing in there. I mean, a man as poetical as one who can say when he's captured by the Turks, he says, My will had gone, and I feared to be alone, lest the winds of circumstance blow my empty soul away. And wow. the book is filled with that kind of flowery and powerful po- prose. But on the other hand, he suffers from some some Randian uh, uh, disease where he'll go on and on about something where you say, okay, enough, enough. And then you'll have to skip forward several pages. But Seven pillar, Pillars of Wisdom, though, I, I'm coming up with an unconventional warfare reading list to accompany the, the two I just published because I was asked to do that too. And that will be on that list. Wouldn't it have been great if he were uh, an anarchist or if you're not comfortable with the, the word anarchist? I th- what is it you could say? Abolitionist? Abolitionist. Yeah. yeah, I really like that. But what? And it's, it and it's been... not a. It's not a matter of uh, discomfort so much, Ben, as as uh, other people's discomfort. Because you and I, as Circle A raconteurs, we're, we're perfectly we're we're happy with that because we're not Kropotkinites. We don't think that Emma Goldman is one of the sexiest women on earth <laughs> or anything like that. You know. But abolitionist, it it makes fewer people fill their pants when you when you explain what it's about because what it allows you to do is say to somebody who says, well, what is your position? They'll usually say, what's your political position? To which I say, I'm agnostic to political positions. 
But my fundamental philosophical position is that I am opposed to all forms of slavery. Right. And that's what really allows you to frame the argument in a way that isn't distracted by people's preconceptions about the word anarchism. Yeah. So I took us in a, another tangent, but you <laughs> you did that to me. Sorry, what were you asking before? Oh, well, yeah. Wouldn't it have been great if Lawrence had been uh, an anarchist? Can you imagine that? I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien yeah. admitted, admittedly was an anarchist. So fortunately, we have a guy there who's probably had uh, – I don't think there's five people on the planet who have – outside of the Bible – who have influenced so many people through literary fiction as him. Mm-hmm. And he's one of us. Yeah. And and Lawrence, in many ways, was so close. Uh, he, he was so close. And, and being, I would have loved to have seen Michael Collins and T.E. Lawrence share adult beverages together and be a, <laughs> be a fly on the wall for that conversation. By the way, tomorrow, of course, is St. Patrick's Day. So expect an homage from me on my blog concerning General Michael Collins. I'll watch for that. I will definitely yeah. watch for that. Yeah. Uh, well, we, we teased with uh, with Lincoln's war there a little bit, and we didn't really get onto it. Um, I had said in an email to Bill, "Hey, Bill, uh, if we get together and talk, you want to talk about? You want to speculate on what it would have been like if Lee had fought an unconventional war instead of the standard statist? You know, uh, it, let's all line up and kill a bunch of of." Uh, of our own men by charging into firing guns, that kind of nonsense. Um, and like, and Bill pointed out to me that Lee would never have fought that war. It was entirely contrary to what Lee was and what he stood for. It was outside his military imagination. Yeah. Now yeah. that that wouldn't have been the case for Lee's what was it, uh, great grand uncle or something like that. Uh, uh, the his he was descended from from practical anarchists, but uh, but Lee grew up in a military tradition and studied and taught the the military uh, the standard Napoleonic military thought of the time, right? Yeah, and uh, plus when you look at Lee's career as a ca- as an engineer captain, eighteen forty eight to eighteen fifty two. In the in the uh, the, Me- the Mexican American War, you can see Lee's sense of honor. You can see where he starts to develop as a as a young junior officer, and and of course this is going to be the case with the great captains of history. Whatever they were at the formative times in their officership, they will carry that with them through their generalship. You know whoever their influences were and such. Mm-hmm. So one of his influences was Winfield Scott, and Winfield Scott was as you just pointed out. Very much the the modern and you could use the term modern Napoleonic officer within that time period. You wouldn't say that today, but mm-hmm. certainly he was in that cast. I mean, West Point taught him to be that way, and he just thought that it was a dishonorable and unchivalrous fight to conduct a guerrilla campaign. But he did look the other way with the likes of some of his uh, his folks, like John Mosby mm-hmm. and others. So. So he was he was he was pragmatic in that way, but he would never. I don't think he would ever forward nor advocate for a strategic campaign campaign of guerrilla warfare. But he saw them as tactical surgical instruments to be used at the operational level, and he looked the other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just in case some of our listeners don't know, uh, Lee was the guy who actually. Uh, captured um, John Brown. This was when John Brown was essentially getting ready to start 
a guerrilla war in in the South to try to set the slaves free. And uh, Lee, along with some of the other noted names of the time frame, uh, is actually the guy that captured John Brown. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. And of course, Lee Lee was always the guy who whoever he worked for at the time. And of course, this would take on a a rather sinister ochre during the war to save Joseph Stalin. But whoever he worked for at the time, he tried to see his his commitment and his contract through. But Lee was the same guy, and of course, they've celebrated this in cinematic history and like Gods and Generals and and Gettysburg, where Lee is confronted by the uh, the the, the higher powers and politicians in D.C. just before the War of Northern Aggression would start. And he is asked to take over the the general officership of the Union Army. And he says, I, I am a man of Virginia, and I certainly can't do that because Virginia is my country. Yeah. But there, there was a uh, – you know, there was, there was probably a 10-minute a decision point he had to come to. Well, do I take this very lucrative offer of being in charge of the entire Union Army – or do I take my chances with the seceding nation state? Yeah. And the history tells us what he did. Um, if someone uh, other than Lee, let's take Lee out of the picture. Uh, well, you know. Alexander Stevens championed just what you're speculating on, the vice president of the Confederacy. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He did. I'd forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. And uh, Jeff Davis, of course. A socialist through and through, much like Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I wish I could say that there were a lot of admirable qualities of him as a politician, but I don't know if those exist as a politician. <laughs> but what's interesting about Jeff Davis, though, is he not only was he classically trained and not only was he an operational and, and strategic mind of the highest order, but he had black foster children who he took care of and adopted. Wow. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. I'm uh, located in uh, – currently, uh, my wife and I are in our RV traveling around, avoiding the northern winters of Ohio. Good and, for you. Uh, we have spent quite a bit of time both this year and last year around the Mobile Bay area in Alabama, which we really love. And uh, there's a, a series of forts in different places that people, I think even today, don't realize the purpose of these f- old forts. Uh, one of them, uh, two of them, are in Mobile Bay, at the mouth of Mobile Bay. They sit opposite each other of the main entrance into and out of the bay. And uh, early on in that war, the Confederacy attempted to take those uh, forts, and, um, and of course, the North uh, attempted to hold them. And uh, going there and looking at the situation and understanding really what these forts represented to the people of Mobile at that time. Um, they were toll ports. They were um, they were a way to make sure that every ship that came into Mobile Bay paid its tax. That was the purpose of why the, the uh, government in D.C. built those forts to begin with. The same was with Fort Sumter and the same was with a lot of other forts. People think in their mind, well, these forts were put up to protect the America from those invaders. But if you think about it, in 1850, who was going to invade the United States? Uh, yeah. Nobody. Yeah, it, it, makes per- it makes perfect sense. Yeah. But what's interesting, too, is that it did take the Union four years to cut through and uh, because it was, that's where the blockade runners came in. Yeah, was through Mobile Bay, and apparently, I guess there's a dozen both USS and CSS ships littering 
yeah. Mobile Bay proper. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And the and the reason I brought that up is because in a very real sense, um, a lot of those ships that were uh, you know that were running past the forts and so forth and were smugglers and people like that 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 uh, they they were doing what we're talking about in unconventional warfare. They were doing some certain aspects of that. You're you're being the little guy. You're being the little bird that swarm that the four or five little birds that swarm around a crow and peck at him, or the three or four crows that swarm around an eagle and peck at him. That's what you know, you're ben, doing. You're right. You, you you bring up such an an important point that isn't covered by a lot of the literature on unconventional warfare, which is that absent the mass base or the population, as it were, and the auxiliary forces that never pull a trigger, but provide the supply, logistical, and support functions for that. No trigger pullers, revolutionaries, resistors, none of those people could exist in the field, mm-hmm. absent that. And it's probably a dearth in the literature to address how that's done. There's a fair amount of that done, again, St. Patrick's Day tomorrow. A great idea of why being a student of the Irish rebellion against the British is a good idea for us as Americans is that it's one of the few English-speaking revolutions in which there is so much written and talked about that's available to everybody there to examine and look at as a way to maybe template what future possibilities are for resistance in their own nation states. Um, here's a little something, too, uh, that uh, to think about for our listeners. There are two times in American history when the occupying government was so uncomfortable that it was uh, that it was very difficult for the guy on the street, the the little guy, to to get along and avoid the government. And uh, I'm talking specifically about right after Lincoln's War, in states like uh, Missouri and places like that, where um, they had been on the border, or even to a certain extent in the South during the Reconstruction. But but it was really vividly clear in places like Missouri where you had uh, thieves, robbers, guys like, you know, the James brothers and the younger brothers and, and others like that who could just fold into society and the locals would protect them. But then they would How? go out and hit a government targets essentially and banker targets and, and railroad targets. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And that, and that's why there's some, some observers of the, uh, of the war of Northern aggression who have said that it didn't end in 1865. It ended with Jesse James' death in 1882. Uh, the other time I was thinking about was the early 1930s when a very similar thing was happening in almost the same geographic areas where, uh, where people like, uh, you know, Bonnie and Clyde and, and, uh, uh, Dillinger and people like that were actively fighting the perceived enemy of the day, the bankers, you know, the people who were literally coming out and, and stealing people's farms. And these guys were fighting against that and standing up to it and very bold about it. And then they could just fold into the countryside and, uh, and, and, you know, evaporate. Uh, Especially, and we were talking about that earlier, uh, I would, I would call to your audience's attention Popcorn Sutton. Just look that up. Yeah. And, and he shows you that kind of rebellious spirit that was in the Appalachians. And, and you're talking about that kind of rebellious spirit in the West. And it's interesting, too, because in the 1930s, what do we have? We have the Volstead Amendment expiring in 32 or 33, the prohibition, from 1919 to 1932 or 1933. 
Well, what happens after that? All of those treasure agents need a job. Yeah. Bonnie and Clyde, the mobsters and the mafia, provided them with the rationale they needed to strengthen their the gun that they had in the hand of the national state in the FBI, the Treasury Office, and all the rest of it. So they were moving off of uh, off of one war that they had been waging, since they're so fond of that, with prohibition, and try, well, what are we going to do with all these agents now? Because you know they didn't fire them. Right. Oh, I know what we're going to do, because a week ago, I think it was, Ben, we celebrated the 81st birthday of the first anti-narcotics law in the United States out of Nevada. Wow. Yeah, so all of a sudden, what happens when, when alcohol is legalized? The feds panic and they say, oh, my God, what? Do we, oh, narcotics. Yeah. That's what we'll go. And guns, because, of course, we have the 1934 mm-hmm. National Firearms Act and the rest is history. And it's interesting, too, in the situation we're in in the United States, that we're approaching a time when the government is going to uh, surrender the war on drugs largely, not completely, but is at least in the realm of marijuana, they're they're going to surrender their position, but they're not going to let go of their tyranny. They're not going to let go of their control. They're not going to lay off. You know, the DEA is not going to evaporate. They're not. Those those guys have to do something. You know what? You bring up an interesting point that I've been thinking about lately, Ben, which is this: a friend of mine just moved to Arkansas, where we are in Arizona. We have, and and I know this sounds roundabout, but I'll show you how it connects to what you just said. He moved to Arkansas, and they just established a discreet carry law in which they don't need a permit to carry either concealed, discreet, or open, which is the same as we have in Arizona. And I thought to myself, how they do that? Because Vermont does that, Alaska does that, Wyoming does that, Arizona does that. They call it constitutional carry. I hate that term, but that's what they call it, <laughs> when you don't need a permit for either a open or concealed carry. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons I think that is, though, Ben, is that what if you, you shine the light on these cockroaches and you make them defend their positions? To me, the position of self-defense and concealed and open carry without a permit is almost intellectually unassailable, despite the rotten statistics they use mm-hmm. in all the teeth gnashing and bedwetting that they tend to do. Despite all of that, they won. I wonder if for some reason the marijuana laws, uh, it, the lights, the light bulbs popping off over people – or people are probably thinking hard about it and saying, well, actually, what is the harm? Yeah. I mean, hemp, I, I'm not a marijuana smoker, but hemp does amazing things if you look at the literature. Amazing things. I mean, even George Washington knew that, that right. hemp did amazing things. Right. So the connection that I'm making here is that if we can force them to defend their immoral and supposedly unassailable positions – Maybe we can make a little bit of progress. But then again, that's where I'm investing. That's where I'm setting aside all my skepticism of political action leading to virtuous action. And and I actually think that that can't happen. Somebody told me the other day something very interesting, and this is from the University of the Intuitively Obvious. (laughs) If, If the means are just and moral, the end will be just and moral. But what government does is they always say, well... The means may be rough, but the ends is justified. Well, no, it's not because you and I know what that end looks like. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, the old thing that the old folks used to say when I was a little kid was that two wrongs don't make a right and three wrongs don't make a right and four wrongs don't make a right. You can't create good by doing bad. And that's the opposite of the concept of government. Government assumes that you can do something horrible and if you do it enough, it, you'll produce good. 
But we have to defend that position, Ben. That's astonishing. Mm-hmm. We have to defend the position that you just articulated. Yeah. And I think part of that is because when you, when you talk to the Keystone Keynesians and the Marxists and all the rest of them, what they're speaking from is a four-year-old toddler's perspective. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a toddler's form of economics, and that's what they want. Otherwise, they're going to stomp their feet or strangle you or punch you in the gut or something like that because violence is the means by which toddlers get what they want unless they're restrained. Let me uh, let me let me go in a direction I didn't warn you about. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> um, no, I love an extemporaneous challenge. <laughs> uh, last year, I did a series on going beyond civil disobedience, and my point that I was trying to get across in it. First off, I tried to uh, I tried to explain what this word this this phrase civil disobedience actually means because. Uh, and I used the legal definitions, and I talked about what you know what Gandhi believed about civil disobedience, what Martin Luther King be- believed about civil dis- disobedience, and that that fits exactly with the statist view of civil di- civil disobedience, which which by definition means that you accept the 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 moral superiority of government it's just this one law or this one act of government that you're trying to change you're not trying to get rid of government you're not saying government is is bad you're just trying to use the means uh, that are uh, available to you to make government more palatable and that's really down deep in its definition that's what civil disobedience is so for example um you know, the riding on, on the, you, you ride on the bus, you decide, okay, I'm going to ride in the front of the bus, even though they want me to ride in the back of the bus. Your purpose is not to bring anarchy. Your purpose is to change that law. Uh, you're not. Your purpose is to extend the law's protection to you, to extend the gun to protect you. Right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. so my series was on going beyond that, going to the, to, to do things that were not for the purpose of making government more palatable. But we're actually going for the purpose of uh, the phrase that I used was tossing uh, Legos onto the carpet in the middle of the night. So when the state gets up in, in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, he steps on those Legos and trips and falls <laughs> down the stairs. Now, I love the analogy. <laughs> now, um, and in doing that, I, and I crossed some things that some people uh, took a, a deep amount of offense to. Um, first off, the greatest amount of offense that I, that I got from that was people angry at my definition of what civil disobedience was. They, they couldn't, they couldn't wrap their mind around the possibility that when they did civil disobedience, they were not fighting against the government. They were fighting to adjust the government. But, uh, but above and beyond that, I also got a lot of heat because I said, uh, some things like, for instance, um, things that are perceived as being government property. Don't actually belong to anyone. So the police car sitting on the side of the road with no one in it doesn't belong to anyone. And if you go and you uh, uh, homestead that police car, then it's yours and whatever you do to it is, morally speaking, uh, not a problem. So if you want to take it and drive it or you want to just break the windows out of it or you want to set it on fire, there's no moral restriction to that because you essentially own it. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good idea. That's probably going to end up... Uh, uh, with a really negative result um, from from that behavior, but from a purely libertarian moral perspective, that police car, or you could use the Washington Monument as an example, or you could use Mount Rushmore as an example, 
that that item, that property, is unowned property because it can't be owned uh, in a socialist fashion. We, there is no social contract, so there is no government. We don't really have uh, ownership of that item. Um, so, so Ben, that being the case, what I'd have to do is I would have to grok this fully because I really have to think about this. You know, reading doesn't take place until you take your eyes off the page. I find Butler Schaefer's commentary on property very compelling where he says that when it comes to rights, freedom, and liberty, it all comes down to private property. And essentially what police cars, the Washington Monument, and all of that is, is stolen property. But it's stolen property of property that doesn't have a deed of ownership to it, to an individual. Right. So that being the case, it's it's rather problematic for me. I, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to entertain that if you were kind enough to invite me for another show where I could be better prepared sure. to, to, uh, to cross rhetorical swords with you on that. But I think we may agree more so than not. But an interesting thing that I've been having a conversation about in the last fortnight has been you hear this notion of question authority, right? Mm-hmm. I am a capitalist Stoic. That's the closest thing that I have to a religion. My Stoicism has guided me through through both the good times and the bad times in my life. So it's Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca. Th- those are my my touchstones philosophically for guiding the way I live my life. Well, from a Stoic perspective, question of authority is is not – it's an abstracture, but it's not one that you can have a concrete impact on. Questioning and obedience is where you can have that concrete impact. Hmm. So what you're doing is you're Socratically drilling and you're saying, well, what gives authority authority? What gives authority authority is obedience. And once you remove that obedience, and as the good General Collins would tell us, once you post your refusal – they could put you in chains, they could send you to the psalm, and they can do whatever they want to with your body, but they won't get your consent, and they'll get your refusal. That's the powerful weapon, I think. Gandhi even talked about that during his Satyagraha campaigns. That's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so, I, I food fa- for thought. I fall back on, you were you were throwing some names out there, uh, I fall back on uh, George Fa uh, George? Yeah, George Fox. Wow, I don't, I can't even remember his name. Anyway, um, he uh, he was an early Quaker, and he got taken before um, uh, Cromwell, and Cromwell had a reputation for uh, dispatching anyone who disagreed with him. Cromwell was a Puritan, and by that definition, that meant he was right. And if you disagreed with him, see the first rule. Um, and Cromwell had no problems killing people. And so George Fox came before Cromwell, uh, and instead of bowing and instead of taking his hat off and doing all the things that he was supposed to do, uh, and this is where the origin of the phrase comes from, uh, George Fox spoke truth to power. And in doing so, he actually, because Cromwell actually believed the the things that he you know that he embraced it, he wasn't just a statist and a monster he actually believed he was doing god's work and when george fox spoke to him truth he recognized that truth even though it was opposite of everything he stood for and he actually broke down and cried and turned fox loose and then after some time he he repented himself of his evil deed and called fox back again uh and fox boldly walked before him spoke the truth 
and uh, Cromwell broke down again and released him and let him go. And, and in all likelihood, Cromwell should have had him killed, but he couldn't because he recognized the truth that he was speaking. And I think I remember that story, and I think that James Naylor was a contemporary of uh, of Fox and and did virtually the same thing. It could be, could be. Yeah. That that name really sticks in my mind. So I, that, yeah, I that no, I sense. think that I, that's a tremendous. I, I love that anecdote. And speaking truth to power, what again using Socratic drilling, we would say speaking truth to tyranny. Right. Because strip off strip off the neutral term of power. You know, it's. I say it again and again. Our linguistics and 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 our use of the language is so critically important in apprehending the world in a true and virtuous fashion. Mm-hmm. When you say the United States is instead of the United States are, just the simple use of that is and are, and most people use the word is, mm-hmm. it, it makes it almost an unconscious acclamation by people that the United States is a, a big, central, amorphous beast. When you say the United States are, are speaks to something that's a little more decentralized. Yeah. Yeah, so so I uh, all I'm saying in, in so many words is that I agree with you, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I, I use the same thing. Uh, hopefully, I'm not dragging this out too long. We're, we're, we've gone beyond what you, uh, the time slot that you allotted me. So I, I hope I'm not dragging this out too far. No, that's okay. I'm enjoying it. Um, I say this often in reference to the words uh, violence and aggression, and and I trip over them sometimes, and I use them interchangeably. But they're vastly different words. Um, you know, there's morally speaking, I have no problem with violence. Violence can be a boxing match. Violence can be, uh, you know, wrestling or violence uh, can be self-defense. You can defend yourself very vigorously and very violently. And I don't have a problem with that in the slightest bit. Um, but, of course, aggression is can include violence, but they are two com- entirely separate words. And I think that's one of the things that uh, that kind of clogs the wheels sometimes in people's mind is when I say something that sounds like I'm advocating violence and, and so much of our thinking in the liberty movement is to uh, abhor violence and yet uh, I'm perfectly comfortable with violence. I I would describe myself as being a violent person uh, in the right circumstances. I can, I can and, and become... There's there's a phrase I use that provides a demarcation line of when violence is just and when it is not, which is murder begins where self-defense ends. Yeah. So with that, you know, you and I both know that I, I, I'm not a Christian, but I am hard-pressed to best the Ten Commandments as a guide for living your life. I mean, that's a pretty darn good script. <laughs> And, uh, but you'll notice, too, that the government must violate every commandment in order to do what it does on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Bill, uh, we've bent the ears of our listeners uh, for a little bit more than my podcasts normally go, but I sure do appreciate you coming on the show and talking to me and giving me your time. Well, it's my pleasure, as always, and um, I would love to come back on. I, I feel as if you you and I could sit by the fireside with adult beverages and a uh, Talk for an extended period of time. If we do make it to Porkfest, I re- would really like to make that happen. Uh, I had. The I'm going to buy the first round. <laughs> okay, I had the extreme pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with Davi Barker 
uh, at the last pork fest. He was camped real close to where we were camped at. And <laughs> did you hear what happened to Davi and I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was amusing. Go, go ahead. But uh, but he, uh, I don't know if you got to spend much time with him, but he also is the type of a person you can sit with and really spend some time. And he is so, he has so many stories and he has so many things that he can say that will just um, make your mind swivel. I agree. <laughs> Davi's just a great guy. You know, the uh, the whole, it's, it's hoary to call it a movement. And I spelled that, by the way, H-O-A-R-Y, so I don't offend any of your more... Uh, <laughs> Sensitive listeners. It's a cliche, but our our movement is filled with so many bright people. My my wife is fond of calling Porkfest and other places she like the Freedom Summit. She says these are nerd festivals. Mm-hmm. But the one thing she can't deny is that some of the brightest people she's ever known shows up at them. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. you don't expect that. Sometimes looking at at you know they don't they don't always appear in the way that you expect them to look. That's right. And, and the only reason why I look even halfway normal as Americans is because my wife dress, dresses me. So, yeah. Well, again, Bill, uh, thanks a ton for coming on the show and for your time and everything. I know, uh, I know you're in, uh, in demand right now and, uh, I'm glad <laughs> that you're getting some attention and, and glad that things are going in that direction for you. Well, you're very kind, and I, I look forward to chatting with you again, whether uh, on the podcast or, or just offline. Yeah, let's let's do this again pretty soon. Let's because uh, I'd like to. I have a podcast. I don't know if I'm going to release. I'm not sure when I'm going to release this one that we're doing right now, and I yeah. have another one that uh, I need to uh, to release. So I'm not sure the order. So I don't want to give out any kind of spoilers or anything. But I'm going to resurrect some of the aspects of my uh, civil disobedience uh, series or going beyond civil disobedience. So uh, I think it's a good teaser uh, for the folks that, that you and I might discuss that in the future. And, well, that, uh, that very argument that apparently caused a contratemps for you with civil disobedience even found its way to my forum. Oh, did it? <laughs> it did, indeed. Yeah. Well, I look forward to that. I look forward to your input, and uh, and we can and have a little teaser for the folks to be sure and listen and watch the, the websites for something like that that might come up. Well, thanks again, Ben, and I just want to say that you are such a gracious host, and, host, and I really appreciate your gentlemanly comportment. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. And, Bill, uh, I want to echo what Michael Dean says pretty regularly. I, I want to thank you for your service, and I mean that ent- entirely. In the, in the sense that what you're doing for freedom and what you're doing for liberty is just amazing, and I really appreciate the sacrifices you've made. You're very kind. Thanks a lot, Ben. I, I hope to talk to you soon. Thanks a lot, Bill. And that was my conversation with Bill Bupert. I hope you uh, enjoyed that, and I hope you get over to uh, zerogov.com, check out Bill Bupert's website, and uh, Uh, Also, thank you for listening today, and remember to visit badquaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thank you very much, folks.